We're opening boxes, we'd open many boxes. Open, 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 box, box, box. Opening boxes with Krieger. Do you think people will get that one? I mean, you keep on making the reference of opening many boxes. Also, I know for sure that Chris Chipman listens to the podcast, so <laughs> he'll appreciate it at least. Hi, Chris. <laughs> All right, okay. All right, back to the regular intro. These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through, through the, the wind. wind door. Welcome to Through the Window, and I am doing the introduction this time because I wanted to introduce a little bit of anarchy this time around. We're back in Washington. We had a single chapter, the next chapter of How Comes Later, and now I'm realizing why Greg does these introductions. Anyway, as the lead introducer, I am now taking the executive decision to delegate duties back to Greg. Greg? <laughs> Thank you, thank you. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes I have these intros planned out, and sometimes I don't. But I appreciate your interest in like continuing to shake up the formula, like we've been promising to do. Yeah. Well we, done, sir. Thank you. We like to surprise the the key to surprising our audience is surprising ourselves. So I have more anarchic ideas. Some of them may come up during this podcast. Some of them may we may have to wait till next time. You'll never know, and I'll never tell. <laughs> I mean, you are the one that is more likely to come up with in-the-moment puns than I am. I tend to, like... Oh, but Greg, you've been showing your <laughs> acumen for that recently, and I love it. I, you know, when I'm able to be that quick on the draw, I like to do that. But that's the thing, is that coming up with puns and suddenly putting them into the Discord is a little bit different than being able to shoot them out on the fly during a one-on-one a, a -on -one conversation like we do. So, I consider it a failure of mine if I have a conversation with any human being and a pun was not delivered at one point during the exchange. Fair point, fair point. Mm. And I love that we are talking about our self-awareness of you know how we are you know using it to help us do whatever we do because one of the things we're about to talk about is we mentioned self-awareness as a part of our earlier conversation that we like it when characters in, in stories show a certain degree of self-awareness that's one of the first things we see going into chapter eight for the record we're going to be talking about chapters eight nine and ten over the next couple of episodes again depending on how long we go on and how many individual episodes our discussion gets divided into but the very first scene is harry and james together and when faced with someone that's like him but with different strengths and weaknesses james considers for the first time what it must be like 
for a neurotypical person to interact with him based on his interactions with Harry. And it's encouraging to see. It's important to see empathy and understanding expanded. Just because you think you have a good handle on how to interact with the world, something can come by that shakes things up and changes your perspective, hopefully for the better. Hmm. Something that comes across in this bundle of chapters is that Abigail and James are, you know, they're still inexperienced with the wider world beyond Mm. Weirwood and they're continuing to take in new environments, situations and people. And the comment about James lying on one of the most comfortable beds he's ever slept on since his childhood in England, or Abigail never seeing a building as fancy as the one they have the party in in a Mm. couple of chapters' time. And, And here, James is encountering someone else on the spectrum, quite possibly for the first time in his adult life. James and Abigail work as some of our points of view, some of the least traveled, perhaps, Mm. among the number. James, he spent a lot of his life with the cemented impression that the rest of the world functions one way while he's the outlier, the one with a different approach. But meeting Harry and seeing her from the outside teaches him a couple of things. First, his is just one of many alternative perspectives from which the world can be viewed and engaged with. And secondly, what it's like to be around someone with one such alternative perspective when you don't have that internal understanding. Mm -hmm. But even without that, he's fortunately quick to adapt and is appropriately accommodating as he asks Harry what she needs and prefers so that she can have the best environment in which to continue her impressive work. If there's one thing that the experience of someone neurodivergent helps to contribute to the rest of the world, or not even neurodivergent necessarily, neurodivergence is one of the extreme examples of it, But the idea of anyone that is significantly different from what we typify as quote-unquote normal, the people that live with that difference and have to live with people treating them differently because of it, or perhaps more accurately, people that fit into what society and media determine is normal are therefore more prone to make assumptions based on that supposed shared experience and treat them accordingly. James, more than anybody else, knows to, as you say, ask the question, what do you need? What's going to help you best? Because he understands that the things that might help other people won't necessarily help her. He knows that from his own perspective in terms of people trying to interact and relate to him just like anybody else Mm. and discovering that there's a difference there, that there are different things that make him feel comfortable, different things that make him feel uncomfortable. Mm. And that's just that axis. It can be just as significant when we're dealing with someone that is of an alternative sexuality or just even something simple like the idea of not assuming that just because someone is a woman that they necessarily have a maternal instinct. And so therefore being like, oh, when you have kids, you'll feel differently. And we're like, no, not all women feel the same. Mm. Trying to be active and say, no, I'm not going to assume anything, even Mm -hmm. if it's something that has 
like just through years of navigating what like a lot of society boxes people into even if you are intentionally trying to avoid that it can still be difficult to avoid making inadvertent sort of assumptions so you have to make an active effort to mm-hmm. say what do they want what will they need and to talk to them about that mm-hmm. unless we forget that James for as much as we talk about how his neurodivergence means that he will talk in quite a sharp way that can be off-putting to others. He's still a doctor. He is still someone who is good at sort of identifying what people need. And this is not necessarily the same case because there's nothing wrong with Harry here. But I suppose the more apt part of James's backstory is his childhood with his mother and when he... Uh, helps Lucy with her breathing issues. It's mm. just being able to know that some people have things about themselves that are perhaps not typical and that the response to that shouldn't be to take a step back and be put off. It should be to sort of take a step forward while acknowledging the other person and saying, right, I'm here, but like I want you to be able to set the boundaries here. To be clear... James is not alone in this. It's a tenant of new century in general that our heroes tend to be more empathetic and sensitive to the unusual other people that they meet along the way. It's one of the things that immediately endeared us to Frank when he was engaging with Harry and drawing her out and clearly listening to what she had to say, not treating her um, the way Edison was treating Harry. And we also see a middle ground to that in terms of Thomas talking about how it was difficult to raise a neurodivergent child and sort of having Mm. to figure things out as a result, but still caring very much about her and figuring out what needed to be done in order Mm. to make the proper accommodations for Harry so that she could flower and everything like that. The only thing that's most significant about this moment is the connection that Harry and James end up making, because while they are both unique, there is still... Like, that's one of the foundations of empathy, is the similarities in terms of their differences from everybody else is what allow them to get a better handle on each other as being like, as as, as going in their own minds, you're like me. Hmm. As a bit of a regression rather than an advancement of our hmm. progress through these chapters, I did want to mark what we hear at the start of this chapter, where apparently Abigail has taken to calling the crew of Steamheart Team Steam, It's an upbeat moniker and perhaps (laughs) less official sounding than anything that Thomas would sign off on in formal communications of any kind. But, you know, because it comes from Abigail, who is really our most uh, direct and relatively personable individual in the team, or among them anyway, we're encouraged to take it up as essentially the official name for the fans to refer to this group as. It's like when we're talking about this group of people we need something to call them because like we can't just call them the steam avengers like we just <laughs> like, let's give them an actual name team steam great there we go i it mean rhymes, it, so it has to be right that's the thing is that anything that rhymes and it has a 
cute way of tripping off the tongue is infinitely mimetic. Mm. So I figure that Abigail coming up with that and passing that around probably means that even if Thomas or anybody else had doubts about calling Mm. it that specifically, it's like, well, everybody's calling it that now, so I guess we're Team Steve. Mm. Stop making Team Steam a thing, Abigail. (laughs) As a side note, as someone that was present for more of the emerging New Century fan base than I was, Mm. is Team Steam a term that originally came up as the book was being released? Or was it a term that might have come up in like conversations and Alex just adopted it? That's a good question. Hmm. I'm trying to place where the gap was, because we had got to around this point before mm. Alex took a bit of a like reprieve from writing Steamheart, and then in the interim he wrote Let Them Go. And I think that he would have written this one in the first batch of chapters, because mm. I'm pretty sure I remember writing a post about the armor chapter. But I'm trying to remember if, like, in any of my reviews up to that point, I was, like, sort of describing them as Team Steam. I don't think that's the case. I will not be the one to take credit for Team Steam. (laughs) But um, that very well could have been something that, like, either in private conversations with you know, the cast and the actual team steam of this, mm-hmm. he would have been like, yeah, you know what, We're let's make this official. It kind of reminds me of how in Avatar you have, like, in the fiction they say, like, well, we're team Avatar, but, like, we do refer to them as that, but in The Last Airbender, at the very least, people have tended to just refer to it as the gang, as in Ang gang, but... Um, <laughs> Ang gang, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The gang... Um, oh, right, gang with two A's, yes. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen all the... And uh, obviously, it's not the first time that even in-universe groups, particularly groups of young people, have come up with a turn of phrase uh, in order to cutely, colloquially refer to themselves. I'm thinking, of course, is the Scooby gang from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um now and... I just want to hear, um, I think it would be Annie who would say, Jinkies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> would that make Miguel and Hrau, like, Shaggy and Scooby? <laughs> I they mean, are tigers... far more formidable, but... <laughs> tigers do need to eat a lot. I don't think it's ever <laughs> Give been... them a Hrawy <laughs> snack. <laughs> give, 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 them, give them Ibex chews or something. <laughs> Yes, oh, okay. Lupinus, anarchy. <laughs> you did a very good job of uh, diverting myself from not wanting to talk about Joms Whedon. So, um, did, did we say John Whedon? Joms Weldon. I like refuse John... to call him by his given name ah. anymore. You went on to highlight a portion of Chapter 8 that I didn't have mm. much to talk about at the time. And I'm kind of glad you did, because it's like, well, I mean, whenever we pick topics Mm. for the chapters that we were planning to talk about, obviously, I tend to be the the one that takes the lead on that. And then you respond directly to my points. 
But as I recall, I specifically said, if you can think of anything that you want to talk about that is not included on this list, please feel free to add it. So I'm glad mm. that you did have something interesting to say about the whole stuff with the firing range, as well as some of the other yeah. elements not touched on. So if yeah. you go ahead and talk about what you wrote. I mean, it was definitely something that when I revisited the chapters after the first re-listen, I was just thinking, well, actually, this is quite a significant thing that we're seeing here, because the firing range is a moment where we are kind of brought back down to Earth. After chapters five through six, we're raring to go and we feel like we're, you know, we've got the best people in the world or worlds of new century going on this crossover adventure throughout the country and we're going to be rocking up to all these different worlds with the best people you could imagine for the job mm -hmm. it's a story premise that encourages a feeling of uplifting empowerment as if the collaboration of these heroic individuals means our protagonists are equipped for anything but what we see in this chapter, which is nominally all about equipping our characters because it's named Armour, mm. and we see here that two of the key players are dealing with some handicaps when it comes to armed combat, a scenario that you know we're definitely anticipating at more than one juncture in this journey. Beyond that, they each have personal codes or ethics that make them reticent to deal major harm to potential enemies, even if they were sharper shots than, than new endowments would allow. And when you combine this with the scorpion suit not being to their taste, then you can, from a practical point of view, understand Thomas's misgivings when the two bearers of the most vital assets on this mission exhibit neither the readiness to kill, even in defence, nor the willingness to take on the most ironclad defence in absence of a good sword at their side in their arsenal. We understand their reasons for doing so, and frankly, I think I would find myself making similar conclusions in their position, both on being hesitant to kill, but also feeling like that particular suit of armour just doesn't feel like something you could navigate the world comfortably in mm. but it does bring to light the fact that there are some considerations to bear in mind on this mission and that we aren't going out with a band of you know video game players or tabletop adventurers who are like equally complicit in killing any and all mobs they find out there and will just grab up any loot and strap them to themselves just to get stronger in the process when I originally read that entire edition to the outline, something specific came to mind, uh, the kind of tropey scene that you would see in movies or other pieces of media. And I love the fact that when I continued following down the list, you directly referenced it in that the whole scene in Weapons Lab A is basically a subversion of Q outfitting mm. Bond with all of the gadgets and everything like that. Right. It's just one of those things where I think it was on my mind because I just put on a Bond film the other night. It is definitely this feeling where, like, you know, when you go into uh, the gadget lab or the arsenal, 
everything that the protagonist is given is clearly set up for things that are absolutely going to happen later. You know, Bond will always sit there and just be like, Cooleys feel oddly situationally specific. Are you sure that I'm actually going to need a cigarette holder with a mini rocket in it? Don't worry, <laughs> Bond. I'm sure the writers will contrive some bullshit to make it useful. Like, <laughs> like whatever you see there, you can take as a given that not only will Bond take all of this crap, but he will absolutely find a use for it, even mm -hmm. in the most unlikely scenario. But here you get a couple of things that aren't majorly like quirky or out there. They're relatively grounded and like utilitarian. It's just that when you get the characters saying, yeah, I I'm sorry, this isn't really for me, that is kind of a surprise to mm -hmm. like, and you can see Harry feeling a bit sort of taken aback. And Yagyu even eloquently and jokingly says, the finest suits of armor in the country, and we can't give them away. <laughs> well, so Harry's response to that is a separate topic mm. that I, I wanted to delve in a little bit further. Mm. But looking at the scene in its entirety, and also I'm kind of like including, as you said, the moment on the firing range as being thematically appropriate. James and Abigail are important additions to the team Honestly, not because of their own skill, but because of happenstance, because of chance. They're the ones that got the endowment, and so mm. they have to go on the mission, even though the endowment also, as we've mentioned before, disempowers them to an extent. Mm. James is still a doctor, and he does still have an above-average brain, but... As this chapter outlines, as a result of having the endowment, as it is now officially termed, that he can't do anything with, makes it more difficult for him to do surgery and other, you know, because he's lost half his perception. And on top of that, it actually makes it impossible for him to do the uh, shepherd book thing. Don't the Bible have some pretty specific things to say about killing? Quite specific. It is, however, somewhat fuzzier on the subject of kneecaps. <laughs> he doesn't have the precision to be able to use a normal weapon in order to disable rather than kill. And that means mm. that because of his oath, he's basically useless in a fight. And the weapon that Harry offers as an alternative, is far too imprecise for yeah, such a method. It's and, literally like an anti-doctor weapon in some yeah. ways, because it, it is meant to do maximum damage. Indiscriminate from, damage. Like, yeah, exactly. It's, it sawed off shotguns in some places. I don't like... I don't want to get into gun control laws, but there was a point at which sawed off shotguns were very specifically outlawed, because there's far too much collateral damage. There's That's far it, too much yeah. a chance of collateral damage mm. with that kind of thing. And I, d I want to pick up something you were saying a moment ago about how the skills that James and Abigail bring aren't really like the thing that are being prized here. Thomas says directly to them, you are not special. What mm. you carry is, and the Wendigos agree with that, but... Um, <laughs> At multiple moments in this, and we'll see the best one later, but at multiple moments in this book, 
hit time after time that just because Abigail and James happened upon these endowments and secret rooms was all about the story of how they wind up with them, mm-hmm. that they're not the fated chosen ones who mm. have been given this thing. This thing can and will shift owners. Like there's nothing other than chance that led them to the place they needed to be, really. I mean, like we could split hairs all day long, but the book is making it plain that we should not view them as chosen ones. Mm -hmm. The author is expressing awareness that this could very easily be read as that. Mm -hmm. So he's having as many independent voices in the book comment on this and say, like, don't get all full of yourself. And the fact that it is both this time and this later juncture, characters voiced by Alex, that is literally the author saying, all right, don't get full of yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. The reason this chapter becomes intriguing then is that between the, all right, let's see what you can do on the firing range, which is not much at all, and then having all these issues, we're like, okay, we're going to give you a Chekhov's arsenal here where all these things should be useful. Uh, No, I can't use this, and I'm getting claustrophobic in this. It's a subversion because instead of being an empowering sequence... It's a very clearly a disempowering sequence. Yes. And so I appreciate turning that particular trope on its head and everything like that. We do know, and it is pointed out, that Frank and Annie are more than capable of being very good defenders of the group in general. Mm-hmm. But part of what that means is that because James and Abigail can't function as well on that front... It means that we're kind of more attuned to the softer side of what they bring to a team in Mm. terms of their values or their perceptive abilities and stuff like that. As you say, this is not a team of murder hobos. (laughs) Listening to our conversation reminds me of one of the ways that New Century has a different feel to it than other media including the most comparable set of shared stories, the MCU. Tiger's Eye and Let Them Go are thus far the only two books that have, by and large, completed arcs for their protagonists. By the time the first Avengers movie comes out, four members of the team have had complete character arcs in their own movies, and Avengers shows us what happens next for them. But for James, Abigail, and even Harry, Their arcs began in one book and will be resolved in this one. It's one of those ways that reminds us that Phase 1 was originally supposed to be a single book. Sometimes I wonder what it would have been like if it had stayed that way. But to be honest, I'm glad New Century got as much room to breathe as it did. Not to mention, yes, Annie and Butler probably bring enough like sharpshooting skills to more than make up for any deficiencies on James and Abigail's part. But then the chapter likes to put in a little wrinkle in the works at the end of that when we just have that secret meeting and it says, Mm. okay, yes, they will be very good at keeping these characters safe, but they've also been given standing orders to kill them in certain contexts. So, you know... Feeding into some of the stuff that we were talking earlier about how our perception of Thomas has changed now Mm. that he's no longer 
the primary protagonist of his own story. Mm-hmm. The end of chapter eight only sort of intensifies. We're put in a difficult place in terms of how we perceive him now that he's the guy pulling the strings, you know, the the Nick Fury to our avenging Team Steam, as you put it earlier. Mm. His orders to Annie and Frank are so practical that they are stone cold. Mm. And any validity to those arguments find a hard time leaving purchase in our brains because we do not want to see our heroes dead, let alone having one of them forced to kill another, even for practical reasons. Mm. In the end, we don't even blame Frank and Annie for agreeing, because we would rather they said yes, since we know that they will go out of their way to avoid this outcome. Mm -hmm. But it is hard for us to forgive Thomas for what we perceive as a betrayal. It's the darkest order we've ever seen Thomas directly give. It's not like an example of when he exercises a slightly tighter grip in order to prevent chaos erupting among a bigoted populace. And it's not an omission of key information from the handbook like we see in a sort of third party sense in secret Mm -hmm. rooms when James is saying, why hasn't this information been spread? And Mm -hmm. because... Thomas was the author, or the only author we knew at the time, we attribute that deliberate holding back of information to him. Mm-hmm. But like neither of those feel anywhere close to what we're seeing here, which is just an order to execute a pair of cartographers under his command. The cartographers are part of what Thomas is the head of, so him ordering for his own troops to be killed in certain scenario is bleak. We can follow the practical reasoning behind it, but unlike during the first meeting where our characters were putting out a series of reasoned out options and making the choice to run with one path in spite of the risks, here there's no other alternative proposal. It's just Thomas and his sceptical anticipation of the worst-case scenario that requires the most drastic and determined of measures to counteract it. And for the first time, we see what that yields in a vacuum, with no Sarah, no other person there to possibly temper it. Mm. And it frightens us. On top of that, we have two things that this moment can't help but call to mind. First of all, Annie is being ordered by the head of the cartographers to go entirely against her promise to Catherine. She made a promise to do what she could for them, and, you know, even though she made no bones about the dangers of this position, and, like, she definitely made it plain to Catherine that the odds were that they would be killed. But nevertheless... She still assured Catherine that she would do what she can. And there's a world of difference between they may fall in the execution of their duty and no no matter what precautions I make, I can never fully protect them. And her being the one to decide if there's a moment when she needs to pull the trigger herself. That's a betrayal of what she said to Catherine on that day. Mm -hmm. Secondly, while we've been tiptoeing around this issue somewhat up to this point... We must remember that 
for the majority of the readers who are making it to Steamheart, they've read Arlington, which means they know full well that Thomas will be assassinated soon, which means that this, for all intents and purposes, is a standing order without hopes of reprieve, which means we have to ask ourselves if there will ever be a point in their future where the onus of this responsibility or the order that Thomas has entrusted to them won't hang heavily over them. Is this just going to be something that they carry with them as this was one of the last orders that Thomas ever gave me and I have to question if those orders go with his death or are even more ironclad because of it? If Frank and Andy had said no, Steed and Latrum would have been sent and from everything that's been said, there is the implication that they are loyal soldiers that would not question an order. They would do as they're told. Mm. Um, and they so, have no personal connection to James and Abigail, which means exactly. there would be no, what's the term, uh, conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But there is something else to consider here. As you brought up, when Annie was having a conversation with Catherine... It wasn't simply that as cartographers they would be constantly going out into danger rather than having a safe hold like Weirwood to return to. When you're dealing with a scenario like the Wendigo, where if someone is injured in such a way that they will turn, then Catherine knows better than anyone that... Once that happens, it doesn't matter how you feel about them. In order to protect everybody else that's left, you basically have to kill them. There is mm -hmm. no reasonable outcome where someone that has been infected will not theoretically become a danger to everybody else. So from a certain standpoint, the difference of James and Abigail leaving Weirwood and going out into the world that means more danger for them because it means there's more possibility of not simply going into danger, but more of a greater possibility for them to be infected. And so therefore, in that case, Annie would have had to kill them anyway mm. as their commanding officer. You're going to be transformed into a monster. There's nothing we can do about this. I have to kill you now. And to a certain extent, that's the world that they grew up in, so they might have accepted that. That is a known problem. That is something that James and Abigail have known ever since Catherine had to kill the Wendigo that was Lucy in front of them. In this moment, though, Thomas is asking that James and Abigail be sacrificed without their knowledge, depriving them of agency, and moreover, in scenarios where the consequences cannot possibly be truly known. Thomas speaks from a fear of loss of control, and therefore gives far too rigid orders. Orders that cannot help, but have potential fallout. And on top of that, there's this whole thing about something we're going to talk a little bit about more in a second, about the fact that Thomas doesn't really trust James and Abigail at this point, and with the conflict that happened earlier in the chapter, Thomas is already seeing the possibility that Abigail's rebelliousness could become a liability, and mm. therefore, in order to ensure that this power remains in his control, he tells Annie, 
if James or Abigail get beyond your control, you're going to have to kill them just in order to keep the power. And that's part of what that makes that feel different from you're going to turn into a monster in order to spare you that experience in order to protect everybody else. I'm going to have to end your life. Mm. It's a move that never reads well when you Mm -hmm. like with Thomas's point of view, it's not about we have control and we're maintaining the status quo. It's, we are in a desperate situation and Mm. we need to take every possible measure to ensure that every asset never loses our side. We have this in the equation now and we can't lose it, is his philosophy. So You, You mentioned earlier the whole concept of you are not special, but what is inside your head is. mm -hmm. To a certain extent, when you're living with this kind of a problem, the idea of no one being special is almost a kind of term that you kind of have to be. No one person is more important than the whole at this point when anyone can be made into an enemy that will only make things worse. <laughs> it's just that this, this is a slightly different circumstance. This is not, this person in particular will be a danger. It's that if we don't have control over this power, then all of a sudden the larger picture is in danger because this is something that might be able to cause there to be less Wendigo or less threats or whatever at this point. Based on everything that Thomas now knows, the Windors are only a potential threat. And not just these Windors, but if the power gets in the hands of someone that can't control them, more Windors could open up, exposing them to new threats. The journal entry from Krieger has, of course, now informed him that the original Windors were an accident. When one imagines the worst-case scenario, Thomas's fear does feel somewhat founded. There is no indication yet that something good, like, say, purple tigers, can come out of them. <laughs> from Thomas's point of view, these endowments are this thing where it's like you have a card for his purposes he wants the card to read no more wendigos <laughs> but if it falls into at, like the wrong hands then it becomes a question of no comma more wendigos <laughs> uh, yeah yeah very important where you put your punctuation it's very true mm. but that's the end of chapter eight let's rewind a little bit and talk about some of the other elements one of the things that i was not aware of Definitely not at time of reading anyway, but something that came up only within the last few months. I think because it was referenced at one point in a school of movies or an after-school special, excuse me, an after-school club, rather, is that the gentleman that's helping out Tudor, John Mm. Hillerick, he's one of those clever Easter eggs in New Century. You're focused on the moment with Abigail and Tudor because obviously, like, can I have your signature? Um, It's another character that harkens all the way back to the cartographer's handbook. Unless you know about the history of the invention of the Louisville Slugger baseball bat, you'd have no idea that Alex just slipped another historical cameo in. Even the fact that John says, oh, yes, I'm, I'm carving a bunch of baseball bats for teams. I'd never heard of John Hillerick before. I heard of the Louisville Slugger, sort of, but I didn't know who made it or anything like that, or that it was made by someone that was alive during that time. 
this is one of those patterns in terms of anything that Alex creates. He likes doing research on things and using that to better inform the world he is using. In one of the future books that is a long way off for us to cover, he learned a whole bunch about New York and used that to inform the New York of New Century in terms of the setting and buildings and places in it and everything like that. In Alex's case, you don't necessarily know all the references he makes. You don't necessarily know if something is an actual part of history or is something that he made up for the story because he just seamlessly puts it in. And if it's something you recognize, you can be like, ah, ah, he did his homework. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you look at something like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, which has to draw attention to every reference it makes, unlike the original graphic novel by Alan Moore, which just threw a bunch of stuff in there. And if you got mm. the reference, you got it. And if you didn't, you know, we're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. It's reminiscent of something that I'm reading at the moment, which is the Fables comic book. Uh, oh, by, by John Willingham, yes, which includes yeah. all of the... A lot of mythological stuff, particularly anything Grimm's fairy tales and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but it does. That one does do a good job of. There will be such a wide cast of characters, and there'll be certain individuals where this sort of incidental character is based on a relatively obscure Grimm's fairy tale or just some other mythological character, and it doesn't stop the book to say this person has their story about this or they won't have a thing where they one of the characters makes a cute line where it's like hey why like why didn't you do what you did that one time or something like that like it all it's all there to just be kind of like if you know it you know it and if you don't then you can wikipedia it if you're mm. very if you're particularly interested here there's that similar element there where you, you can be relatively confident that some of the main characters aren't historical figures, but because just enough of them are, you know, Annie Oakley and Frank Butler, you sort of inject this feeling of some of these people might be. So let me like let me just Google that name and then say, like, oh cool, that that is someone who's well known for it. And it strengthens one of the core philosophies of New Century, which is innovation and technological advancement directed towards the betterment of mankind collectively through a unified effort is the key to our survival. In such a setting and with such a story as this, why not incorporate the historical figures who have you know, already made such contributions to the advancement of technology and human culture. Like, if we're espousing this philosophy, then I think it's only right that if it's a historical setting, we provide some examples of the people who have done that and made things that have pushed people forward. And if there was an environment which is supposedly meant to sort of jumpstart the development even further, why wouldn't all of these particular individuals congregate together and start collaborating and doing even more of what they're doing? That's why like the cartographers feels like this perfect who's who of not just sort of soldiers, but explorers and innovators and mm. inventors and craftsmen. There are more than a few fictional works out there which includes say the idea of 
if they were able to, Edison and Tesla making far more than the mundane inventions of, you know, electricity and the phone and all that stuff like that. If they had been allowed mm. to, they would have gone on to create super technology back during the 1900s um, yeah. and everything like that. But in this particular case, next to people like Annie Oakley, who is famous because, you know, she was a performer and people wrote stories about her, or the fact that Edison and Tesla were these amazing inventors for their times. And so people, you know, make movies and write books about them or include them as characters and other things. It's kind of natural. There aren't mm. a whole lot of people writing stories about the man that invented the Louisville slugger necessarily. <laughs> well, maybe that should be. Um, and on the but... other, and, and, and as a side tangent, all of a sudden, I've been thinking about the possibility of like, if I was going to do new century fan fiction, what would I write about? Suddenly I'm thinking back to when we were talking about Emily Dickinson and I want to write just like Ooh. a little short story about the, the, the last days of Emily Dickinson in Massachusetts. That's a good well of new century fanfic. You could genuinely take any historical figure that you find somewhat inspiring or like you know commendable and say yeah i think that in this climate they might do this and uh, this adventure and i think i think that would be cool it, it brings to mind a video that came out on overly sarcastic productions this week your like taste for it may vary because it's entirely about the assassin's creed series which mm -hmm. has you know been a flavor it's a series in a flavor that's hard to swallow nowadays and well possibly for a long honestly while. there's nothing necessarily wrong with the assassin's creed story apart from its individual components in certain hmm, in certain installments of that game necessarily it's really just the fact that the people that the make people it making it. shit show yeah yes yeah OSP did a video which was talking about how accurate is it really or authentic. But the point they were making in it is that trying to explore the accuracy of games or just media and historical fiction is always a bit of a like rabbit hole and also not necessarily an interesting question because by the principle you're like you can't really make stories about these characters these people really because you're making assumptions about something one and something that you can't know for certain the real thing to strive for is creating a feeling of authentic like mm. does this period feel authentic and it did make me think of new century and i think that it's definitely well worth a listen or a watch if you're especially curious about like what we do here and what new century is doing because it's ultimate history but it is taking elements of history so yeah it's it's worth um, a listen mm -hmm. i knew that blue was doing some stuff with assassin's creed but i thought it was primarily just um a let's play or just watching him go through it so i didn't know that there was side conversations about the game and the setting and everything itself. I should have guessed, considering mm. what Blue and Red regularly put out. Now I'm interested in looking further into that, absolutely. Two more things that I wanted to touch on very briefly in Chapter 8. 
as a result of like reappraising and reunderstanding some of the key moments of Steamheart and how it informs on events in later books, I remembered that Thomas and Abigail got into conflict in chapter eight, leading to that amazing moment where Harry has to shout everyone down because she's trying to get something done. I didn't remember till listening to the audio drama, specifically in preparation for talking about this chapter, that the argument was such low stakes. It wasn't arguing over goals or values necessarily, but just Abigail asking questions and James, for some reason, being irritated by it. I guess thinking that, you know, her curiosity is inappropriate to the situation or something like that. And certain other things being said that got under people's skin, particularly in the way that Abigail brings up what the supposed goal of Team Steam is supposed to be. And Thomas reiterating is like, that's a garnish that Truth mm. added on. To. And so therefore, anytime Truth gets brought up, his hackles naturally raise because that's kind of just what happens with Thomas. But the point is, is that it just sort of comes out of nowhere a little bit. And honestly, towards the end of it, we're kind of glad that Harry shouted everyone down, not just her father, but everybody, because this was a fight that didn't actually need to happen. Hmm. And to be perfectly honest, for the first time, we can see to a certain extent why it is that Thomas has a tendency to be the ultimate patriarch and see people around him as be behaving childishly because this conflict didn't actually need to happen. He came out and said, I actually approve of your goal to collect all these signatures to celebrate the cartographer's handbook. And I'm actually sorry that you can't get Lawton Sadler's signature reminding us that he passed away as um, one of the things that happened in Arlington. And, you know, it's sad and somber and it leads to Abigail asking about Grant, which, you know, naturally causes Thomas to be more protective. It's just like this is a sudden mixing of personalities here mm. that leads to unnecessary conflict. But once more, we can see the through line. We can understand mm why James is irritated by Abigail, because that's just something that happens. And we can see why Thomas is irritated by both of them, saying things like, I'm not an errand boy, or... Yeah, which is a very loaded thing of, like, when... <laughs> yeah. and I, I, but I also think it's a something that's... It's interesting that, like, you know, like James is sort of kind of getting shirty with Abigail when he basically extrapolates that she's still on about the signatures. And well, she's but, that's, but that's even just his assumption. She mm. could have been asking about it for other reasons. Like yeah. the, the fate of the president feels like a, a generally reasonable question to ask. Absolutely. It's just the fact that the subject of the signatures had come up. And in the meantime, mm. you know, after Thomas retorts angrily to uh, James's idea, Abigail is out very contrite in saying, I wasn't going to ask anyway. 
And yet, like, she doesn't sort of just not defend what she's doing. She does then say, well, I'm still taking my handbook with me. You never know who we might run into out there. And, like, it's sort of like, okay, that, like, asshole, that wasn't what I was going to say. But, like, because you're being prickly about it, I'm still going to, like, emphasize that uh, this is important and I'm not going to stop just because, like you find it unseemly or something like that. Right, so Abigail and James are needling each other a little bit, and Thomas is literally standing over there going, are you done, children? Yeah. <laughs> we have I more mean, important things. But what's the, that's the funny thing, is that he's also kind of feeling a bit sort of, you know, he, some of his objections are not childish. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm your superior here, and also, like, this young white man asking me to do something, let me tell you I'm not your errand boy, is, <laughs> like, okay, yeah, no, that's a thing to definitely not be suggesting. But he's kind of getting distracted by things. So when mm-hmm. Harry then, and it's very specific that, like, first of all, she was trying to interject at multiple points, like, Mm -hmm. when different characters were speaking, so she was kind of having an issue with everyone present, so when she then hammers, like, one of the hammers from her workshop down onto what sounds like an anvil, it does a couple of things. First, it's stressing, you're in my workshop, and I'm the mechanic. Like, (laughs) listen to me, you're in my domain. And it also, secondly, kind of feels like she's the judge, and she's calling order, and just being like, you know, I will hold you in contempt of workshop. Also, isn't it interesting how it's almost a little bit of a counterpoint to that moment in Chapter 2 of Arlington, where Harry is trying to warn Edison that he's getting too close to the capacitors and is going to shock himself, but she's Mm. being very gentle about it, and it happens anyway. This time, she gets everybody's attention, not because anyone's about to be hurt, but, you know, as you say, this is her domain. We all came here for a reason, and you're not listening to her. Also, it's possibly the case that she's kind of starting to get a bit more comfortable with, like, the people present, that, like, you know, she has done things like earlier on in this book we see her rev the engine as a sort of way of like you know saying i'm not done talking when edison is around but here she's also sort of showing like she is starting to grow a bit more confident but Mm -hmm. she's also growing more confident especially around people that like she at this point knows that she is going to be riding with james and abigail and i think at this point she's found that she likes them well enough, particularly because we've seen James sort of be very, like, sort of understanding around her. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at this point, it's like, shut up, we're getting distracted. And I love that Thomas is the one who sheepishly responds, we're all sorry, Harry. Mm -hmm. You know, all of them are sorry. And so it's important there that uh, Mm -hmm. he says that, not only as the sort of superior who sort of lost sight of what they were doing there, but also as her father, that he needs to respect, like, that she does have this authority here. And Abigail shows, like, her own admission and resolve to show Harry her renewed attention when she says... What have you got? Like, you know, just Mm -hmm. like, she's like, you're right, we got distracted. What have we got? So it's a great moment. It's a great scene to just kind of get the crossover antics there, but still not let it go on too long, because Harry is there to call order, damn it. Well, 
This took longer than I wanted. Due to personal issues, I may be a bit slower on the upload, but I will still try not to stray too much beyond one episode a week. Going forwards, I may just decide to return to my old tendencies of using basic outro music instead of picking out a thematically appropriate song. That process can sometimes be arduous unless I have one already in mind, and in this case it just added to this week's turnaround time unnecessarily. But I did pick a song, appropriate to current U.S. and world turmoil, and my own frustration with it. I'll let the lyrics speak for themselves. Until next time, this is once more the Indigo Girls with Trouble.